Ramble. Ramble. I'm the type of person who's hyper aware of what I put in my body. I have a lot of food intolerances and it feels like every year I discover new ones. If you have allergies or IBS or you choose to avoid certain foods for personal reasons, you know the food FOMO is real and it's just not fun. A month ago, we went to Jeju Island, which is famous for pork, but because I'm allergic, I was just standing there watching everyone gobble up the food. And recently, I almost gave up morning coffee because I'm so sensitive to dairy these days and black coffee just does not hit the spot. Thankfully, I found out about minor figures and now I don't have to start my days on a bitter note. Literally, Minor Figures is an oat milk brand. They're 100% plant-based, carbon neutral, and B Corp certified. So not only do I get to enjoy my coffee, but I don't have to worry about anything irritating my stomach. There are no stabilizers or additives. And what I love is that Minor Figures Barista Oat really helps showcase the natural characteristics of the coffee. It's not just there to carry the coffee flavor, but it enhances it. So you know how at-home coffee never hits the spot like coffee shop coffee? With Minor Figures, it does. You can really taste the coffee versus the oat milk. It's delicious. You can buy their products online at us.minorfigures.com. You can also discover fun games, music playlists, and explore their store locator to see where you can buy Minor Figures near you. For my listeners in Denver and New York, Minor Figures is also now available at Whole Foods. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. Hit it. And I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> and we're just going to jump right into the story. Let me tell you a little bit about Florence, Italy. Listen, I've never been, but this is what Google tells me. This is what my research tells me. Most young people in Florence, Italy, they live at home with their parents till they're married. Now, the average age of marriage is pretty late. So that means you're with your parents for a while. Now, what kind of happens because of that? There's an interesting result that takes place. Something that I didn't think about. You're thinking, ah, the housing market. No, no, no. It's not that boring. It's actually fun. It's fascinating. Car sex. In Italy, car sex is a national pastime. It's speculated that one out of three Florentinians alive today, people from Florentine, Italy, they were conceived in a car. <laughs> if you go out on the weekends, you might see a ton of cars parked around the hills, just filled with young people like it's steaming on the inside who still live with their parents they can't have sex at home so they're just doing it in their cars so this by itself would be a super cute story but of course no someone has to ruin the fun some creeps got the great idea why don't i go and i spy on these young couples having sex is it legal to do that here in america um no but it's done it well, is yeah, done. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think it's legal. I think it's public indecency. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's legal in Italy either. <laughs> but I mean, who? which cop is going to pull you over? I guess you're already pulled over. Who's going to pull you out? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so they say, okay, I'm going to wait out in the hills of Florentine with my spy gear. I mean, some of these creeps, they would buy electronic equipment, suction cup microphones, tape recorders, night vision cameras, and they would just have a blast. So many people were creeps, essentially, that they were given a nickname, and I find this nickname to be a little bit racist, so I won't repeat it. We'll just call them creepers. Now, the creepers, they start outnumbering the amount of car sex couples. They start zoning on the hills. So what they do is they decide each group, each clan of creepers is going to have their own section of the hills, and they're going to dominate that area. That's their territory, like a drug lord. And if you're a creeper from a different territory and you want to enter this territory, this zone, of the hills to watch those car people have sex then you need to pay the original creepers money to enter like disneyland does the couple know no 
So each part of the hill was managed by a group of creeps who tried to cover their territory for the best sex-watching voyeurism that they could find. Some part of the hills were highly sought after because they had good coverage. You could hide in a bush that's relatively close to the dead end where the couples park. You could get closer to the cars or there was a hill that good cars came by. Good cars meant couples worth watching. So maybe it's like a hot couple or maybe they do a lot of... Nasty not like stuff. a bmw no no no, okay. no no like a bmw bod does that make sense and then these creepers would buy and sell their spots so if i'm sitting here and this is my creeping territory a car pulls up very attractive couple i my visibility is good i can sell my spot to the highest bidder in real time <laughs> where's the this bidder? Is a business oh just you wait where's the bidder you ask did you know a lot of wealthy voyeurs would actually do creep tours yeah, they would do what tours. So they would hit up multiple zones of the hills to creep on car sex couples in one night, like a Disneyland tour, like a tour bus. Hollywood Boulevard, you just go from car to car and you watch people have sex with binoculars from behind a bush. That's wild. So business starts booming so much so that another business develops because, I mean, your economics professor is quaking in her boots right now because listen to this. Once people started realizing that there were wealthy creepers or creepers that had families, there was a new business, another business idea that spurred up. People started watching the creepers. And then blackmailed them. Yes. Uh. So the creepers would watch the couples have car sex and then people would watch the creepers and blackmail them. So creepers could be stalked by people with huge cameras. They would follow them, get to know their home life, get to know if they have wife and kids. What's their job? When do they go out to creep? Then they would catch them in the act. The creeper would be peacefully masturbating away in a bush and then boom. What was that? Busted. That was like a bright, bright flash of light. What was that? And then they zip up their pants and they rush home to their wife and kids. And then the next day they get a phone call. Hello? Remember that flash in the woods? The photo came out impeccable, if you ask me. You look simply marvelous. A likeness that even your second cousin would recognize. Which, by the way, the negative for the picture is for sale. So you would buy your own creepy picture of you masturbating in the bush so your wife never finds out. So let me get this straight, okay? Young couples are having sex in their cars in the woods because youth, young love. Creepers would spy on them, watch them, masturbate to them. And then there was this whole economy of the creepers finding the best spots. And then the creeper stalkers would stalk the creepers to catch them in the act and blackmail them. I love it. Cycle of life. The cycle of life. And, you know, you can always start a business. I don't care what they tell you. There's opportunities everywhere, I guess. So what does all of this have to do with a serial killer in Florentine? Was there a creeper that happened to be a serial killer? Was there someone who loved watching these couples have sex in their cars so much that he thought, why don't I just kill them? And why did he always take their private parts? He always mutilated and stole the private parts of the woman of the couples. As always, full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but it's not just a regular book today. This might be one of my favorite books of all time. It's a nonfiction book, but it it feels like fiction. It feels like all categories. This would be my standout favorite book of the year. It's called The Monster in Florence by Douglas Preston, who, by the way, worked as an author for the American Museum of Natural History. He taught writing at Princeton University, which I know sounds bougie, but this book is not bougie. This book, anyone can read it. It doesn't sound pretentious. It's I feel like I'm watching a movie. I believe there is a movie. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is in the movie. Yeah, 
about I think this case. so. Uh huh. I mean, he's written a ton of books, Douglas Preston, and all of them are super popular. And honestly, he's the type of author where I'm like, I know that I can't go wrong with any of his books. Now that I've read this one, I'm going to go pick up all of them. And then it was also co-written by Mario Spezzi. He's an Italian journalist who was so heavily involved in the case. He went through so much trying to find answers. And when I say when I say so much, I mean so much. We're going to get into it. I don't want to spoil anything outside of this case. He's an investigated big mafia bosses, terrorist. He's also been an author prior to this. So I think one author is amazing. Having two in one book, it's hard to say that I love a true crime book because of the story and what it's about. But I think if, if the author is delivering a story so heartbreakingly well that you shed tears for the victim, you get flustered and frustrated for the families and you feel something for these real life people. I mean, that's a good book. That's what the book is supposed to do. And that's what it does. I mean, the whole thing is crazy. It's hard to believe that this is a true story. There were so many times where I'm like, is this like a dramatic recreation of a story? Like, is it inspired by? No, it's a true story. So go check it out. Now let's get into the monster in Florence. The monster of Florence is one of the longest and most expensive criminal investigations in Italian history. And you are going to get frustrated. It's intense. 16 people murdered. Close to 100,000 men were investigated by the police. More than a dozen men were arrested. And a lot of them were released because once they were in jail, the monster of Florence had struck again. They arrest so many weird people. Journalists get arrested. So let me give you the lowdown. Again, this is coming from someone who has access to Google and has never been to Italy, right? This could either be spot on or horribly incorrect. So for my Italian listeners, I am deeply sorry. There will be a formal apology coming soon. Tuscany is a region in central Italy and Tuscany's capital is Florence. I think it's one of the most famous cities in Italy. From what I've heard, they're known for their Renaissance art. They've got even the Michelangelo's David sculpture is mm-hmm. in Florence. The architecture there just seems out of this world. The whole city sounds and feels like it's one of the most pig- picturesque places in the world they've got vineyards mountainside vineyards they've got some of the most beautiful olive groves every part of it is like an instagrammer's dream okay i mean the setting itself is perfect for car sex let's be real you drive up into the hills the mountains of florentine and you see these beautiful vineyards these olive groves i mean you're just kind of in the mood who wouldn't be every couple would be so i'm sure that there were people out there that thought well something bad's gonna happen in this economy with the creepers with the blackmailers something is gonna go down i mean these young people in these cars they don't realize they're being watched so imagine the horror when amongst the safest, most pleasant scenes of Florentine Hills, two bodies are found. Giovanni and Carmela. They were both found shot and stabbed in the Florentine Hills. Giovanni was still in his car. His head was pressed up to the window. He had a bullet hole in his head. Carmela was found outside of her car near some flowers and she was naked. She was completely naked. The police theory was that someone had um, watched her have sex with her boyfriend because that's what they were doing. And before she could even get dressed, he shot the boyfriend, dragged her out of the car to a local flower bed. Like right there, there's a little wildflower patch. Mm -hmm. And the killer even cut out her pubic area with a knife. Like a scoop? Yeah, like a scoop. Just scooped it out and took it with him. 
And when the police get there, I mean, none of this makes sense. This doesn't seem like a crime of passion. This doesn't seem like someone who was jealous of the couple. Like, you know, in this situation, you might think, well, maybe one of them was seeing someone else. Is there some sort of affair going on? None of this makes sense. Nobody wanted the couple dead. They were a working class couple. Carmela worked for the house of Gucci. Giovanni worked for an electric company. Hardly the type of people where you would want them dead. Like they didn't have access to a lot of privileged information or a lot of money. It just, who are their enemies, you know? The couple had headed out for some exercise in the car and they were playing John Lennon's Imagine, the song. And in the middle of the song, someone had shown up on the side of the car out of the dark and shot them. So when the police start investigating, they start realizing, whoa, wait, wait. This feels really familiar. This doesn't feel... I feel like we've kind of covered this case. I feel like we've we've done something like this. And they go through their records and they find that not long ago, another couple was found dead. We have 19-year-old Pascal and 18-year-old Stefania. So they worked... They were also another working class couple. They worked at like a bar and she was an accountant. They were madly in love. I mean, teenage sweethearts who went out on the weekend together. And both murders happened on a Saturday, by the way. So first they go to a club on that Saturday, a teen club, and the original plan was to hang out with their friends. But they thought, they thought, why don't we just sneak off real quick in the car, have a rendezvous? Nobody will know. They snuck out of the club into Pascal's car. They drive not too far off from this super packed club. I mean, this is all the cars are jammed in there. There's a lot of people in this area. They get down to business. And just like the other couple, a man had appeared out of the darkness, shot the boyfriend, dragged Stephania out of the car, viciously stabbed her 97 times. Now, this 97 times, though, was not just random, frantic stabbing. This was almost like a pattern. Like, it seemed like he had an elaborate way of doing it. It wasn't just, oh, I'm so angry, I'm getting my anger out. It seemed like there was something he was trying to either draw or maybe it was like a direction, like he did like right, left, right, left, middle, like pivot, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. It seemed just almost... Just unnatural, right? Yeah, it seemed almost planned. It's very mm. elaborate. It's not... It, it seems methodical. They were mainly around her chest and pubic area. And again, a big chunk of her private parts down there were missing. So he had taken them out. He had carved them out once she was dead. So he goes to pick up an old piece of grapevine from the local vineyard and he picks it up and there's vineyards all over the place here. And he used the grapevine to assault Stephania's corpse. The reason that the police were able to connect these two murders together was because the same gun was used. A 22 caliber Beretta. It's like a long rifle handgun. It's like a pistol. So it's typically used for target shooting, but there was no silencer on the gun either. Now, this is a little, a little side note. This specific gun, the firing pin in the gun, had a small defect that left an unmistakable mark on the rim of the cartridge. So if that wasn't there, they might have just said, oh, well, maybe the same gun and the same bullet was used. But how do we know for a fact it was the same person? But because of that, it's almost like every single bullet that came out of this gun was as unique as a fingerprint. So when Stephania's friends hear that she's been murdered, they start rushing to the police. One, One of them said she was telling me earlier. Stephania told me earlier that there was a weird guy that was creeping her out. Once I was with her the other day for a driving lesson and there was this creep that kept trying to talk to us, trying to bother us. Another couple came forward in that area and said, well, you know where they were found? We were parked there the other day and to do some things. And there were a lot of creepers. They were trying to watch like a lot of weird middle-aged men just trying to look at us. Some of them were acting weird, just not normal. I, I felt like they were unpredictable. So, of course, now that these two young couples are murdered, they were sharing an intimate moment of love in their cars. People start freaking out. The number one suspects right off the bat 
are the creepers. It makes sense. So the police had their sights on one in particular, Enzo Spalletti. Now, Enzo, they didn't necessarily think he was a suspect, but they thought that he could be their inside scoop for the creepers. He was like a well-known creeper, you know, because these people, they're not going around advertising that they're a creeper. So they need an in. The police need to infiltrate this group. So they heard that he's an ambulance driver. And at night, his favorite hobby was to blow off steam and spy on couples having sex. Even though he has a wife and an entire family at home in a little house outside the village, he would go out all the time. He was known to be very quiet. Neighbors hated him. He always thought he was better than everyone else. He was so full of it. His head was so full of thoughts about himself. He was he was conceited. He even sent his children to dancing lessons as if they were the children of a lord or someone important. That's what his neighbors said. When in reality, the whole town knew that in his free time, he was a voyeur. So the police rushed to interview Enzo, see if he knew all the other creepers, give them a lead, give them some insight. But the whole interview, he's incredibly arrogant, defiant. He said that the night that the second couple was uh, murdered, he was just driving around town and he found a sex worker, picked her up and had sex in the woods and dropped her right back off. I mean, the police thought this was weird because no sex worker in Florence is just going to willingly get into a stranger's car and let them drive her 20 miles away outside the city into the woods. So when they confront him with this, he says, okay, okay, well, I didn't pick up a sex worker. I'm a creeper. Now, the police already knew this, but he thought this was the first time. I like watching people have sex. That's what I was doing. I was watching young people have sex in their cars, okay? But I I know it's going to sound suspicious, but it's not. I trust me. I was spying on Giovanni and Carmela that night, and it wasn't my first time either. I've been watching them for a while. But so what? I'm not the only one that spies on couples, especially them. They're actually known as a good car. (laughs) That's crazy. Yeah. But there's no way I'm the killer because I was with somebody else. I was with my friend Fabri for most of the night. Now, it was unfortunate for Enzo because when Fabri didn't really back him up, like when he was interrogated, he was like, yeah, I don't know. I think there was like a huge two hour gap that I didn't see Enzo. So they're like, Fabri, tell us about that day. And he says, Well, Enzo and I met up at a local restaurant where, yes, a lot of creepers would go to this very specific restaurant to exchange intel, to exchange information about good cars. So he was there before we start the day. So we're, you know, trying to figure out what zone to go into. Yeah, zone. (laughs) It's like a full-time job. This is not even worth the hobby, no? And he's like, so I see him. And then he kind of disappears in the hills. And then I see him probably a little after 11 p.m. Where did you run into him? He was on the way down from a hill called Via del Arrigo. That's about 30-something feet from the crime scene. Is that not, Fabri? Yeah, and he was coming down the hill around 11 p.m. That's the time that the police suspect the couple were murdered. So they went from talking to Enzo to get information, but now they felt that he was their strongest suspect. I mean, it's fishy. So they go back to him and they ask him more about that night. But there was no proof. Even his wife told the police that she went to bed at 2 a.m. and he still wasn't home. So that's about two, three, four hours that he's not accounted for. And he was in the place that the murder took place. I mean, it's just all weird, but there's not concrete evidence. They arrest him. They lock him up. But for whatever reason, they have to release him. In the meantime, they keep talking to his wife and they ask, do you know what he was doing when he wasn't home? And she says, yes. Many times he promised me that he would stop, but then he would get back into it. And he always said that he would go out to, quote, have a look. That's what he called it, to have a look. But I know he's not a killer because he's got this huge fear of blood, a terror of blood. Even at work, if there's a highway accident, he never gets out of the car. He refuses to get out of the ambulance because he's scared of blood. 
So the police decide that they're just going to arrest him for murder with no evidence. They're just going to charge him for it because, I mean, all of it's so fishy. Now, that's strange, right? But I'm not necessarily on Team Enzo here, I promise. But they really had no piece of evidence that would hold up in court. The newspapers also pointed it out. They said, listen, we all want justice. I'm sure of it. But police, this feels like an easy cop out. Pun intended. You guys just want to tie up this case with a cute little bow and a ribbon and you feel the heat. This is a scapegoat. And while Enzo was in prison, a few months later, while he's waiting for his trial, a new headline takes over. The killer returns. Young couple found brutally murdered in Farmer's Field. It was another Saturday. Stefano and Susanna had gone out to the movies with uh, Susanna's whole family. And afterwards, since they had taken multiple cars, they decided, well, (laughs) okay, parents, you go home. We're just going to stop by some ice cream. They didn't get ice cream. Okay, plot twist. They went into the hills and they were trying to have sex. They specifically went into these farmer's fields because, I mean, it was kind of cute. Stefano said that he had these vivid memories of playing in the fields. That's where he grew up. And he just wanted to take his high school love there. He just wanted to show her around. And they stopped for a little while. And they start having sex near the vineyards. The night sky was beautiful. You could see the moon, the beautiful stars. And in the moment of perfect ambiance, this romantic scenery, there was a loud boom. A bullet flies through the driver's side window, hits Stefano in the head. Another bullet flies in, hits Susanna. Now, she's not dead yet. Stefano is. The killer opens her side of the door, drags her body 32 feet from the car onto a patch of grass, and starts stabbing her in a pattern around her chest and her pelvic area. He mutilated and took her vagina, and the couple was found the next morning by an elderly couple taking their morning walk. So the police, they start gathering some evidence. This one was a little bit different because something had been left at the crime scene and they believed that it belonged to the killer. Now, right now, it's going to seem like such a small detail. Trust me, this story gets so crazy. I don't even want to spoil it, but you're going to need to remember this for like an hour later. So there was um, there was like a little triangle, like a small stone. It looked like a doorstop. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like an elongated triangular shape that you would stick under the door in the shape of like somewhat of a pyramid, I guess, Mm -hmm. if you really want to look at it like that. And this is the only thing that they had found of significance for the past three murders outside of the bullets. It's all they have. It's it's like a random object. Yeah, near Susanna's body. So they're thinking, well, maybe he used it to break the car window uh, so that he could get a better shot Okay. or to open the door afterwards. I mean, I don't know. 20 years later, it would lead into another arrest and a bizarre investigation, okay? 20 years later. So the day after the murders, Enzo's released. And the public is enraged. Firstly, they've never really heard of a serial killer in Italy. That's something that happens in America or Northern Europe. Not here. We've got, like, really good food here. That's, that's some stuff that happens in the UK, Germany. Like, places that are violent, not Italy. What is this? Are we American all of a sudden? (laughs) You know, these young couples, they were terrified. They stopped having sex in their cars in the hills. They continued to do it in their cars, though. Just not in the hills. They did it in the city. So they would park right next to each other in the parking lots. And they would um, like bumper to bumper because they were terrified of creepers and just being murdered. So they would cover their windows with newspaper and towels and they would do it. So you would just see these cars lined up where you can't look inside. No way. And it's like rocking. All the cars are shaking, you know. They're all just moving with emotion so that nobody can see them having sex because it's said and it's speculated that the monster would watch the couple have sex all the way through, watch them finish. And right before they can put on their clothes at that moment where they're probably the most relaxed, the most happy, he shoots them. 
Meanwhile, a ton of people were outraged. I mean, the police had just accused the wrong guy. Are we just going to let that go? That's that's kind of crazy. Are the police in over their heads on this one? Yeah, we never really have serial killers, but can we like call the FBI or something? Because they got a lot over there. Like we do you guys know what you're doing? So people start helping the police. They're like, OK, I'm going to help you solve this case, guys, because you guys suck. They start writing letters. Listen, I know it's my ex-husband. I just know it is because I always knew that if Italy was going to have a serial killer, oh boy, it would be him. I knew it. It's my dad. He, if he's capable of taking away my phone, if he's capable of grounding me, he's capable of anything. My son-in-law I know he's family, but he's not. He's a serial killer. He's already killed my daughter's hopes and dreams. What more evidence do you need? This guy loves to kill. There were rumors, conspiracies. There was a headline that said, the surgeon of death is back. A newspaper headline. So instead of buying the newspaper and realizing that it was a little bit of a clickbait title, people just saw it on the newsstands as they were walking by to work and they're like, the monster of Florence, the killer, it's a surgeon. I saw it on the news. I saw it on the news. So everyone's like, oh, my God, cancel your appointments with the doctor. I know you're dying, but you're going to die there. The killer is a doctor. I knew my dentist had it out for people. He's always been a rough person. Oh, my God. The police just stopped by my anesthesiologist's office. He had put my grandma under for surgery just last week. He could have killed her. We came so close, grandmama. Not only is he a regular doctor, but he's a surgeon. He's a man of the upper, upper class. He's a man of culture. We can't trust anyone. He could be at our next country club dinner. So who even came up with this theory? Why did the newspapers print that? Well, it was released to the public that the women that were murdered had their pubic areas cut up and cut out. Now, even though the autopsy stated that this was not a surgical procedure, this was not like a crazy methodical, you know, type of situation. When you hear that, I guess you might only think that a doctor would do such a thing. So everyone started talking about, have you heard about the operations he did on the girls? He took his scalpel and cut up their bodies. The private areas were cut with such calculated precision that he's a sick doctor. He's probably been wanting to do this. That's why he got into the medical field, even though there was no evidence pointing in that direction. So the police are flooded with everyone accusing their just family doctor of being a serial killer. And if the letters were specific enough, the police couldn't ignore it. They had to investigate it as a lead. So they found themselves investigating what felt like all the doctors in Florence. Now, the police probably got the most calls about a gynecologist in particular, which makes sense. You know, the public hysteria of like taking away the pubic area of these women. And it was a a man by the name of Garametta Gentle. (sighs) I just know I'm saying that wrong. (laughs) I just know like I I cannot even feel someone grabbing their phone right now and typing out an email and sending me like a YouTube link, which honestly, I appreciate it. How do you even YouTube link a name? I got to do that. So anyways, he was one of the most successful gynecologists in Tuscany, and he was the director of a clinic. But there were some nasty rumors about him. His wife had allegedly planned on leaving him because she had opened up the fridge one day and found the trophies, the pubic areas of the woman. Oh, and guess what? They were right between the mozzarella and the arugula that she was going to use for her salad. So, of course, this sounds like a very exaggerated account of events. When the public realized he still hadn't been arrested because the police found no information or no evidence against him other than this weird rumor that was going around about his about a vagina being found next to the mozzarella balls. They couldn't they didn't find one. So the the public take it upon themselves to start protesting outside the doctor's house. And the head prosecutor on the case had to go on to TV and say, this is a rumor. If you are spreading this rumor, we will charge you. We have investigated him. He is not the monster of Florence. Then Mario Spezzi, 
okay, do you guys remember this guy? He's the co-author of the book. <laughs> Mario oh Spezzi gets involved. He's actually the one that coined the name Monster of Florence. Um, he is the main journalist that was working on this case from the beginning. And honestly, there's a lot to unpack. So a little about Mario Spezzi. He was already a super notorious reporter. And now with this serial killer case, he was doing interviews for news outlets. They called him the Monstrologer. This was a young journalist dream, being at the center of this case. I mean, are you kidding? He was working with the police. He was even called out to the murder sites. He saw the crime scenes with his own two eyes. He wrote articles with heart, passion, and a lot of people were just drawn to his reporting. And he, too, also tracked down some leads. So the first being that um, they, he found that the investigators were talking to a, quote, medical examiner. And I say that with quotes because his name is, quote, Dr. Carlo Santagello. Let's call him Dr. Carlo. So his name is... Uh, <laughs> These names you're pronouncing, I'm telling you. His name is, quote, Dr. Carlo. Now, he's a strange character. He claimed that he was a medical examiner, which I don't think is true. So anyway, he goes around. He's 36 years old, and he's always dressed in black. He's wearing these weird eyeglasses. He's always carrying around a doctor's bag that was filled with glistening scalpels, like perfectly meticulously maintained scalpels. If you passed him on the street, he might hand you one of his cards, and it would read, Professor Dr. Carlo, Medical Examiner of Institute of Pathology, Florence Institute of Pathology, Forensic Section. But he didn't work there. He also didn't live anywhere near there. He would actually live out his days at hotels or random boarding houses in small towns near Florence, which I don't think anything's wrong or weird about that. But he did have a quirk. He only wanted to stay in hotels that were in close proximity to cemeteries. Okay. Guy's a little strange. Maybe we shouldn't investigate him. He would specifically ask for a room with a view. A view of the tombstones. So maybe he's just obsessed with life and death. Maybe some doctors are just weird. What does he do all day? He's a doctor. Well, he does checkups, of course. He writes prescriptions for people. He claimed that he operated on people. But the problem was, he's not a medical examiner. He's not a physician. He's not a pathologist. He wasn't a doctor at all. Of course, this is going to catch up one day, right? Well, while he's checked into a hotel, there's a little accident. And someone starts screaming, oh my God, I know what to do. There's a doctor staying at the hotel. I'll grab him. Dr. Carlo, he's good. Yeah, he's the one that performed all the autopsies on the monster's latest victims. That's what he told me. That's what he told the hotel staff. So we're going to go get him. They rush hesitant Dr. Carlo to the scene. And when he shows up, there's no denying it. This guy's not a doctor. I mean, even the civilians knew how to perform better first aid on the crash victims. And a lot of people started worrying. Well, if he's not a doctor... Why does he carry around that stuff all day? Maybe the doctor is a cover for the fact that he wants to carry around scalpels so that he could mutilate the victim. He must be the monster. So he became the next target of the investigation. Even his ex-girlfriend came forward to say that this guy's a creep. Whenever they had sex while they were dating, he would take these sleeping pills right before. Sleeping pills right before sex? That doesn't make sense. Why? Why would you want to be sleepy? No, no, no. He'd say, this is the only reason that I can resist the temptation to leave you in this bed and take a turn around for the tombstones. What? Yeah, so he's saying, you're not really that fun and hot for me. Like, I want to go jerk off to a tombstone. So I got to take this. So I don't do that. Now, the only problem was when the police interview him, he had an airtight alibi and uh, he had gone to sleep early that day at a hotel. The hotel staff confirmed this because he wanted to go to the cemetery the next morning. 
at this point, the public was over the doctor theory. They were like, yeah, yeah, it's run its course. It's no longer fun. The newspapers were no longer selling off the shelves when they said doctor, doctor. You know, it's just it's old news. They needed a new fresh theory. So that's where the theory that the monster was a monk comes about. There were shell casings left at the crime scenes that were old and discolored. So they believed that maybe this came from a super old pistol or super old bullets, which you know what else is old? Monasteries. What kind of a connection? <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, and it gets crazier. Maybe it was a monk because he wanted to show the young sexual kids the wrath of God. They're having sex in the car before marriage or just having sex in general. He's got to get rid of them. Remember how he assaulted one of the victims with a grapevine? That could be a religious reference. There's a biblical reference that essentially says vines which produce no fruit, he taketh away. So maybe like uh, if you're not producing children, fruit... While having sex, he taketh away. Okay. Now the police take this lead seriously, and sex workers come uh, start coming forward to say, well, we were approached by a very strange priest at one point. Oh, yeah. He wanted to pay us extra to shave off our pubic hair. The police are intrigued. Pubic hair? Well, the monster took pubic hair as a woman. Pubic hair? Is that what he wanted? So let's talk to the holy priest that loved... um. Bald vaginas, okay? Let's go talk to this guy. So the police, they show up and they, appre- they approach the priest. They show him the warrant and he fainted. <laughs> and he wakes up and he goes, listen, I'm not going to deny that I, I, I like sex workers a lot. I'm not going to deny it. But I deny being the monster. Eventually he was cleared. He had an alibi. But I think that this just goes to show. Question any and all authority. Okay, Beh- Behind closed doors, everybody's full of secrets. Everybody likes bald cats. There was another instance where a couple driving in the area the night of the murders in the farmer's field said that they saw a man driving a red Alfa Romeo. When they passed it, they couldn't help but notice the man looks anxious, just strange, just weird. Once the news of the killings breaks out, they rush to the police. They have a sketch drawn up. But before the police released it, they're like, wait, I mean, think about it. This guy could be completely innocent. Maybe he's cheating on his wife. Maybe he's just maybe it's a stolen car. Maybe he doesn't know how to drive the car. Well, think about it. Think of the public hysteria. His life would be over regardless of if he's the monster or not. So they choose not to release it for now. They will release it in years. And it's going to cause a... It's going to get weird. So about a year passes without any killings. Back to Mario, the journalist. So during this year, he's writing these stories, following the leads, and he's giving the public the information that they want. But he starts having these crazy nightmares, anxiety attacks. He felt like the monster would come for his wife and his daughter. He even had to get a psychoanalyst, like a psychiatrist, essentially. But he was a monk, which just instilled a little bit more fear onto him because there was speculations that the monster was a monk. It just really forked with his life. Now, after he's getting his sanity back, finally, because a year passes, it was the first Saturday of the summer. It was a dark night. Like the other murders, they called it a moonless sky. Like the moon was very faint. The hills were darker than normal, and a young couple, Antonella and Paolo, who is 20 and 22 years old, were peacefully driving on the countryside of Florence like they used to do so often before the monster of Florence. The, you know, they loved these cute night drives. They were inseparable. They were madly in love. The two, their friends would actually call the two of them Vineville. It, it's like a popular brand of super glue in Italy mm. because they were always together. They were stuck on each other. 
That's cute. That's cute. So that day after going to a cute little ice cream spot, they decide to go to the countryside like old times. And she's like, I don't know. They haven't caught the monster yet. I, you know, he kills in those areas. And he's saying, come on, Antonella. Like, we'll go somewhere safe. I promise. And they ride off into the night. They pass a beautiful castle that was over 900 years old, a beautiful river. And they, they took a wrong turn and they ended up in a dead end lane that was heavily wooded. Now, at that moment, Antonella and Paolo were almost at the geographical center of what might be the map of the monster of Florence's crimes. Now, Paolo wasn't scared. He's like, see, there's nobody else here. It's just us. And he starts kissing Antonella. The couple have sex in their car and Antonella hops into the back seat to put her clothes back on. And while Paolo is waiting in the driver's seat, he must have seen something because he books it just out of nowhere. Antonella slams into the back seat of the car because he's reversing out of the dead end like as fast as he can. This shakes up the monster who's watching this. And he fires a shot into the car. It hits Paolo in the shoulder. Wait, wait, wait. What did he see? He sees that they're driving away. And no, 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 no. he saw the monster face and everything with a gun. In the bushes? Yes. Or, okay. Coming out of the bushes. <gasps> okay. So he's like, we're going to die. So he's reversing it out of there. The monster shoots him in the shoulder. Antonella is screaming. She throws her arms around Paolo's head. And she's holding onto him so tightly that her watch clasp would later be tangled with his hair. Paolo backs out of the dead end, tries to drive to the main road, but he gets caught and lands in a ditch. He tries to drive out of the ditch, but he's stuck. They were essentially sitting ducks. And the monster was standing on the other side of the road. And because of the way that they had backed out, their headlights were on and they could see him clearly. He was holding up the gun and he fired. They both shut their eyes in anticipation. This is when we die. You know, that's what they're thinking. But when they look up, they realize that he had shot twice. One into each headlight. Two perfectly placed bullets. And now it was dark. The monster calmly crossed the road, threw open the door, and he shot each one of them in the head. He did try to get the car out of the ditch because it was very close to the main road, but it didn't work. So he gave up and instead he mutilated Antonella. Next to her body, they found a bottle of medicine that was, uh, it's like sold over the counter. But they could never really connect it with anyone. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And now what's even more surprising is that a lot of the monster's crimes up until this point was in incredibly isolated areas. But this one, I mean, the main road, people were jogging, like not even a mile up. There were cars passing by. I think the police said at least six other cars drove by this area during the time of the killings where he had thrown Antonella onto the floor and was mutilating her. They're not tucked away into the woods. So when Paolo was found, I mean, he was still alive, but barely. So he died in the hospital without regaining his consciousness. Antonella had since passed. But the fact that he was alive gave the police an idea. They called up Mario. They called up a bunch of other journalists and they said, we're going to scare the monster. I want you guys to lie. Write that the victim was taken to the hospital alive and he might have said something useful before passing away. If this scares someone, it might cause the monster to be so freaked out that he messes up. He panics. He gets ahead of himself. Who knows? This is our best shot. 
So the journalists lied, but nothing came out of it. Well, that's what they thought. Because the police were launching their own coordinated attack that day on the monster. The same day as those articles were released, they were going to release the sketch that they'd been holding on to over a year ago from the last murder, the guy in the red Alfa Romeo. Now, as soon as these were printed, police were flooded with calls. I know him. I know him. Actually, quite a bit of people thought that it looked like this local butcher that owned a little butcher meat shop. And so outside this small shop, there was an angry mob holding the sketch, doing like marches. They had to close down for a week. He was not the monster. He was just a butcher. Then there was a pizza maker at Red Pony Pizzeria and a bunch of younger boys kept coming in to tease him that he looked like the monster. They were bullying him, essentially. They would run in and say, oh my God, it looks like him. And they would run out in terror and then repeat the process. The next day after lunch, the pizza worker slit his own throat and committed suicide. Yeah. And then there was another lead, a taxi driver. The police thought that this was a really solid lead. He looked just like the sketch. So they called a taxi requesting that specific driver to come to the police station. They ordered him out and they were shook. I mean, this guy at least looks like his twin, but probably not even that. They look the same. This is the same person. The sketch looks like it's based off of him. This is our guy. This is the monster. They rush him into the interrogation room and he's kind of sobbing. He's like, listen, if you hadn't called me. I would have come myself once my shift was over. Ever since that picture was published, my life has been total hell. I've had nothing but clients who suddenly want to get out of the cab in the middle of the ride. I've unfinished jobs. And this guy had an alibi, an airtight alibi. The resemblance was just a pure coincidence. So the public is exhausted. All the sketch lookalikes are exhausted. The police are exhausted. And that's when they get a letter in the mail. Inside of it, there was nothing but a yellow clipping of an old article, a long-forgotten murder of a couple who had been making love in a car parked in the Florentine countryside, and that's when they realized the monster didn't just start killing recently. His first murders were 14 years ago. Someone had tipped them off. They wrote on the newspaper clipping, take another look at this crime. So this is not sent by the killer? No. Anonymous. So what happened 14 years ago? Well, let me tell you, because this is what's going to put everything back together, okay? 14 years ago, a young couple, Antonio, who was 29, and Barbara, who was 32, they were shot with the same gun that was used in the rest of the Florentine killings. The police reopened the case, but the strange thing is, the case is already solved. The murderer had confessed to the crimes. He's in prison, and he's been out of prison for a while, but he was at a halfway house. So there's no way that he's the monster of Florence because he's been tracked ever since. But if he didn't kill these new couples, then maybe he didn't kill that couple 14 years ago. But then why would he confess to the crime? I mean, it's it's confusing. So they go and they question him. And here's what happened. Barbara, the victim, was married, but not to the person she was in the car with, not Antonio. She was married to an older man by the name of Stefano. Now, Stefano was a Sardinian immigrant from the island of Sardinia. Now, uh, I say immigrant because it's part of Italy, but it has its own domestic autonomy. So, I mean, if you were to immigrate to the mainland, you would just say like i immigrated Mm. i guess barbara's cheating on her husband goes out to the movies with antonio and afterwards the two of them have sex in the car meanwhile her son's in the back natalino natalino is her son with stefano her husband he's just sleeping in the back she had taken him out to the affair i mean it's kind of crazy a man ambushes them shoots them both now this is the part where natalino wakes up to the gunshot screams because his mom is dead rushes out two hours later he finds his way to a house that's 1.5 miles away from the crime scene which is weird the police thought that that was really weird and he's like please open your door i'm asleep daddy's sick in bed and you have to drive me home because my mom and my uncle they're dead in the car 
The police rushed there. They realized that Barbara was an interesting woman. She was having a lot of extramarital affairs. She forced her six-year-old son to call all of her, you know, people that she was having affairs with, uncle. Everyone knew that she was cheating. The townspeople called her Queen Bee. Because Natalino was only six years old, he had a hard time keeping his story straight. He was traumatized. He kept changing his answer. And the police thought, well, we already know who did it. So who cares? Let's bring in Stefano. Let's test his hands for gunpowder residue. That's when he broke down crying and said that he killed his wife and the lover because he was jealous. So due to his confession and due to the circumstances, he was given a reduced sentence of 14 years. Where's the gun, Stefano? Oh, I, I threw it in a ditch on the way home. But when they went to search the entire area, they couldn't find the gun. Now, what's weird is these are the same bullets that was used for the new Florentine killings. So you're saying somebody else picked it up? No. It's him? Well... Here's where it gets weird. Now that it was brought up again, the police are now searching for the monster of Florence. They rush to question him. What did you do with the gun after the killing? But his, his mind was like gone. His mind had deteriorated in prison. He was barely there. He was tense. He was suspicious. He was not trusting. Whatever he knew, whatever he was thinking, he didn't want to tell anyone. But maybe he would talk to journalist Mario. So Mario arrives at the halfway house and he persists and he lets somehow the priest that runs the house lets Mario talk to Stefano. And at first Stefano is cautious, but he starts he starts trusting him. And there was really nothing that he got out of it until he was about to get up and leave. Stefano grabs his arm. This is like straight up like a movie. You got to read the book. He grabs his arm and says, they need to figure out where the pistol is. Otherwise, there will be more murders. They will continue to kill. They will continue. Mario leaves and he's like, okay, well, what does he mean by that? Maybe he truly is, uh, I don't know, losing his mind a little bit. I don't know. That's weird. Is he paranoid? Does he think that some strange organization is out here killing people? But then it struck him. Maybe when Stefano killed Barbara, he wasn't alone. Maybe he had gone with friends or people he knew and they had taken the murder weapon. And now these people were on a killing spree. What? Maybe there's not one. Maybe it's not the monster of Florence. Maybe it's the monsters of Florence. But why wouldn't he just say the name? He's terrified. So the police also get to the same conclusion and they start looking for anyone that might have been there at the night of the murder. Who would be with Stefano? Because Stefano was from Sardinia. The police assumed that it was a Sardinian gang of some sort. You know, a lot of Sardinians, they immigrated at that time and... Sardinia at the time was one of the poorest parts of Italy. So to the mainland, I mean, they're going for better education, a better life. And it took a lot for them to do that. The book states it so beautifully, but it said that Sardinians were afraid of the sea because the only thing the sea brought to their island was death, pillage, and rape. Their ancient expression is, he who comes from the sea robs. They had Christian ships that came to kill their forests to build their boats. Pirates who came to take their women and children back for their own sexual comfort. Legend has it there was even a giant tsunami that wiped out all the seaside towns. And that's why the Sardinians were forced to move up into the harsh mountains. So when the police start investigating Stefano, they come across a village called the village of Via Cidro. Okay, it's a super isolated, even by Sardinian standards type of village. It's got a lot of wooded areas in the mountains. Locals hated it. They called the village a cursed land, the country of shadows and witches. Everyone said that the witches in the village wore long dresses that touched all the way to the ground to hide their tails. And inside this village lived a family named the Vinci family. Now, the Vinci family consisted of three brothers. Giovanni, who he had a bad past. Okay, he raped one of his sisters. 
So he was put in jail for a little while. Then we have Salvatore, who married a teenage girl by the name of Barbarina, or little Barbara, and they had a son together by the name of Antonio. Then we have the youngest brother. I mean, it really does feel like the Vampire Diaries later. Francesco. Francesco was just a violent kid. Like, he was known to love killing sheep in the area and to skin them and gut them. Like, he was obsessed with killing animals, which we know is a bad, bad sign. Okay? So these three brothers, they're wreaking havoc in this village. And one day, Salvatore's wife, Barbarina, is found dead in her bed. Now, the authorities said that she had committed suicide via propane gas, but everyone in the town felt different. She had been murdered by her good-for-nothing husband. Now, this suspected murder of Barbarina was the last straw for everyone. The brothers were essentially exiled and forced to immigrate to mainland Italy. The Sardinians were like, get out of here. We're going to drown you in the waters unless you leave because you're killing Sardinians. Like, get out. So they board a little ferry. Now, the youngest two brothers were the ones that will be the most important, Salvatore and Francesco. They were the opposites from hell. Salvatore was introverted. He was considered to be a bit more thoughtful. Francesco was young and he was extroverted. He was violent. And even though together they hate each other, they will play a big role in this. Once they get to Tuscany, Francesco spends all of his time at a bar outside of Florence that was notorious for Sardinian criminals. It was like the hangout spot of some of the most famous gangsters. What's their business, you ask? The Sardinian gangsters were known for kidnapping for ransom. They would kidnap, kidnap a bunch of people, and if they don't get their ransom, they would kill their victims, feed the bodies to pigs. And it didn't seem like Francesco participated in this. I mean, I guess we don't know. Salvatore, on the other hand, he gets a job laying brick. He rents a room in a rundown house of one of his girlfriends. The dad of the house was Stefano, and the wife was Barbara, the one that was killed in the car. Stefano is the yeah. husband. So, so they're he, all living together. Yeah. So, yes, Salvatore's girlfriend is Barbara. It said that Barbara was a beautiful woman with plump lips and a cute little nose, and she was thickums. She came from a really poor family, and they arranged for her to marry an older man to provide for her. And she did not like Stefano. She thought that he was a bit stupid, too much of a simpleton. So Barbara cheated all the time. She stole money from Stefano's parents. She would gift the money to younger men. She would even bring some of these men home to have sex with. And Stefano's parents were living with them at the time. So they're just seeing their daughter daughter-in-law do all these crazy things they tried to stop her they put iron bars on the first floor windows but it didn't work she would still sneak out so salvatore meets barbara and they hit it off stefano doesn't even try to discourage barbara at this point he's even the one that suggested salvatore come live with them salvatore would tell the police he wasn't jealous he was the one that invited me to live in their house when i was looking for a place to live come live with us he said we've got a free room and i told him well i don't got the money and he said oh just give us what you can why he's just a nice guy it seems like maybe maybe he had a kink for watching his wife with other people or maybe i don't know maybe he just thought like i gotta do this so she stays with me salvatore moves in and right away stefano brought salvatore into the bedroom and said why don't you take my wife to the movies come on take her out i mean just weird stuff stefano would go out with his friends knowing dang well that he's leaving his wife alone with salvatore and it was clear that they had an attraction for each other like they were dating it was weird. So it's so bad that Barbara had Natalino. All of Tuscany thought Stefano was not the father. Now, I don't know how Stefano's feeling, but his parents are fed up. So they throw out Barbara and they throw out the child. And now even Salvatore's on the street. And Barbara starts renting a hotel and staying with Salvatore. So it seems like they're dating, which it seems like also Stefano is encouraging her to keep dating Salvatore, which is the confusing part. And that summer, Barbara gets bored of Salvatore and moves on to his little brother, Francesco. 
he was hotter. He was more masculine. He was a bad boy. So she starts going to these bars with him. She would talk to all these tough Sardinian guys. And yeah, sometimes she would flirt with them. And Francesca would grab her by the hair, drag her out the bar onto the street, rip off her dress, leave her practically naked in the middle of the street outside of a bar that honestly, I probably wouldn't even order a drink, let alone trust someone with my drink there. But even that, the thrill wore off and Barbara found another man, Antonio Lo Bianco. Now, it's said that he also laid brick and he was hot, sexy, muscular, and tall. That's what the book says. It feels weird. He was married as well, but he didn't care. He was heard telling his friends, oh, Barbara, yeah, I'm going to fuck her in a week. So now you've got both the brothers, Salvatore and Francesco. They were pissed. They were humiliated. And on top of that, Barbara had stolen money from Stefano and Salvatore. The brothers wanted it back. The night Barbara goes to the movies with her new boyfriend. They bring Barbara's six-year-old boy. They watch the latest Japanese horror movie, which I don't know why the six-year-old was allowed in, but he was. And after the movie, Antonio drives to a near an isolated cemetery and they start doing it. But the killers were already waiting. They had waited till Barbara got on top of Antonio. and It was such a nice night out. One of the windows was rolled down. The killer crept up, shot at Antonio four times, shot Barbara three times, And Natalino had woken up after the first shot, so he saw the rest of the bullets being fired into his own mom and his uncle. After those seven rounds, the gun had one bullet left, and um, it it said that whoever was doing the shooting handed it to Stefano. They didn't try to kill the kid? No, because it's Stefano's kid. Oh, right. Who points it at the wife's already dead body and shoots her. That got his hands contaminated with gunpowder residue. Which is perfect, because the Vinci brothers wanted to take advantage of Stefano's innocence. He was so gullible, he could be talked into anything. Now he is going to go down for the crime of murdering his own wife. What kind of idiot would agree to this? Of course you're going to be the number one suspect. Whereas maybe the brothers wouldn't be. They search the entire car, they don't find the money, and Natalino is still there, and he didn't run off. He sees daddy with a gun, and he's screaming. He, he doesn't know what to do. So Stefano picks up his son, starts singing him a song to calm him down, walks him 1.5 miles to a house, and drops him off at the door. Now, this is when the police talk to that child and he's really confused. He's like, I think my uncles were there. I think my uncle like Pietro was there. I don't know. There was a lot of uncles there. Like he just kept saying all of this. And the officers were so frustrated. One of them yelled, if you don't tell the truth, I'll take you back to your dead mom. Which what? The only thing that Natalina was sure on was that his dad was there. So the police didn't care. I mean, they really only needed one killer. They're lazy. So they bring in Stefano. He cracked and told him I killed her. And he also briefly brought up Salvatore during his confession. And he also said that his wife had owed Salvatore money. And Salvatore had said, I'll kill your wife for you. That will even out the debt. He really said that. So the police, they bring in Salvatore and he stares at Stefano. I don't know why they were allowed near each other. And Stefano throws himself at Salvatore's feet, screaming, forgive me, please forgive me. Oh my God. Stefano immediately tells the police, I'm the one that did it. I'm the only one that did it. I killed my wife and her boyfriend. It was just me. And the police are like, cool, nothing weird to see here. Case closed. Send him a jail. Now it's time for the trial. The police bring in Salvatore to testify against Stefano. And there was just a super strange moment. While Salvatore is testifying, he's wearing this flashy ring on one of his hands. The judge asks him, what's with the ring? And he says, oh, this? And he stares at Stefano, not the judge. And he says, it's Barbara's engagement ring. She gave it to me. 
What in the so world? now that the case was reopened, the police are now desperate to talk to the Vinci brothers, Salvatore and Francesco, and maybe find out where the murder weapon is because it's the same murder weapon. They start looking for Francesco first because he's kind of wild record. He was violent, involved in gangs, constantly reported to be violent and abusive to girlfriends. Meanwhile, Salvatore had a clean record. He hadn't gotten into any trouble. So the police thought, well, Francesco fits the monster of Florence. Let's start looking for him. Let's start looking for dirt. At the time of one of the killings, he was in the air visiting his nephew Salvatore's son Antonio then at the time of another killing he happened to be visiting his brother yet again for his nephew or maybe it was all a decoy maybe he was there for killing so while they're searching for him they come across a car in the woods and it's hidden in branches they run the plates guess what Francesco's car why would he get rid of his car was it the pressure of the reporters now remember when the reporters lied that one of the victims was alive at the hospital this was around that time so it seems like, okay, he probably got scared. So he gets called into the station for questioning and he starts going off on a tangent. Well, there's a woman and a jealous husband and he might be after me. I mean, it was really rambling. There's no storyline, nothing made sense. And what does that have to do with your car? So Francesco's arrested and officials even tell the press the danger now is that a new killing can happen even more spectacular than the one before. So they're thinking, we don't know if this is the right guy. That's like what they tell the press straight up. And if this is not the right guy, then the monster might want to outdo himself to show people, hey, you caught the wrong one. I'm still out here. Besides, nobody thought it was Francesco. Everyone for this entire time now was certain that it was a surgeon, someone of the upper class, not this random criminal off the street. That's not fun. So months pass, no crime yet. But it wasn't summer. That's when the monster likes to strike. The winter, everyone's just anxiously waiting. They don't know. Is this the right guy? Mario wrote a book called Monster of Florence in Italy, which is not the book that um, you'll probably read if you get it on like the Kindle or in America. The, the new book has like the full story. But anyways, this is like the first version. He releases that, which didn't help the public get over their fear. That summer passed with no murders. Everyone's relieved. Okay, this is the right guy. But September 10th, behind the hills of a monastery, there's this super old road that's pretty private. It leads to like a like an olive grove. So it's not really a place to drive through. It's not a destination road. Like you're going there because you know something there. And the, the city had no signs up in this area. So we have Willem and Jens, Hens, Willem and Hens, I believe. They were from Germany. They were here for a vacation in Italy. They had no idea about the monster of Florence. It was a gay couple and they had started camping out around this beautiful spot. It's actually considered one of the most beautiful spots to soak in in the Florentine Hills. They start listening to some music. They were going to have some fun. They start taking off their clothes and a man comes out of the woods and shoots them. Now, it's unclear whether he chose them, considering up until this point he had been clearly targeting straight couples. Maybe in the dark, Hen's smaller frame and long blonde hair maybe believed that it was a girl, or maybe, maybe made the monster believe he was a girl, or maybe the killer was inclusive and didn't care. I don't know. Or maybe he was just like, I gotta kill ASAP to show that the monster is still free, right? In any case, Francesco is still gonna be sent into prison because the police are like, no, 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 that doesn't make any sense because they killed the two men from Germany on a Friday, not a Saturday. The couple was gay. He's not straight, you know? The monster always kills on Saturdays and straight couples. So we're not gonna release Francesco. Now, even Francesco's nephew, Antonio, Salvatore's son became a person of interest because he had been arrested for possession of illegal firearms. He was brought in to be questioned, and Francesco was super close with Antonio. I mean, the Vinci family are all about doing things as a family, even killing people, potentially. Antonio's thrown in jail. It seems like the police really only threw him in jail to get him to talk about his uncle. Maybe he knew something about Francesco. The police spread rumors in the prison that there, there's a rift. 
Oh, yeah. Antonio told the police everything about his uncle. He's a snitch. Don't trust him. Oh, you see that guy over there? He's even ratting out his nephew. What a loser. Who rats out their nephew? So the rumors started circulating and they hoped that one of the brothers or one of the family members would hear it and get so spooked they would indeed talk to the police. But they did not. The family was uh, smart in their own twisted way. One time the police yelled at Francesco's face, I know you're the monster, I know it, just confess! And he was sprayed in spit like they had spit all over his face. And Francesco was cool as a cucumber. He said, I beg your pardon, sir. But if you want to pressure a response from me, tell me first. What is that thing on the table? It's a pack of cigarettes. Is it empty, officer? Yes. Then it's not a pack of cigarettes. It was a pack of cigarettes. Now it's merely a pack. Please may I ask for another favor, officer. Please take it in your hand and crush it. The police were curious, so they did it. They crushed it, and he said, there. Now it's no longer even a pack. Your evidence, sir, is like this. You can crush and mangle it to fit any theory that you like, but it will always remain the same. An empty speculation and never proof. Oh, smarty pants. <laughs> smarty pants. <laughs> I'd be like, listen, I don't even smoke, but I need a smoke right now. <laughs> even Antonio didn't crack. The nephew not only stood up to the police during interrogations, he represented himself in trial for the illegal firearms possession charge. He said the guns were not found in my house. They were found a distance away from my house. There was nothing tying me to the house except that it was somewhere near my house, which is public property. Technically, anyone could plant it, No. To put me in jail? To pit me against my uncle? Is this some elaborate way to get my uncle to talk? Am I just a pawn in the police's game? We can only imagine. And the judge released him. So they're not getting out of the Vinci family, so they bring in Stefano again. And he's not talking. He's obviously scared of someone. But they did find in his wallet a tiny little piece of paper that was folded over a hundred times, which is insane. And when you open it all up, it's handwritten on there. It's almost a script. Talking points of what to say if he were arrested by the police. And the letter was written by his own brother. I mean, it was weird. A lot of things were misspelled. Half of it was written in capitals, the other half in cursive. There were a lot of weird phrases that the police didn't understand. It was a mix of Italian and Sardinian. And soon, two more people would be arrested regarding the case of the monster of Florence. Giovanni Melli, Stefano's brother, and Piero... Okay, Piero. This is uh, his brother-in-law, so Barbara's own brother. And when the police searched Giovanni's house, there was a scalpel, knives, ropes in the trunk of his car, a stack of porn magazines, and notes with phases of the moon on there. Was he trying to find the nights without the, without the most moon? Is that what was happening? Because they were moonless nights? Giovanni's ex-girlfriend even said that he had some weird sexual habits. It was hard to keep up with him. He had such a large eggplant that even normal sex was so painful. The police were like, this is perfect. This is great. The monster. He's the monster. They were charged with the double monsters of Florence. But Francesco was still not released. So now they're saying these two guys are the monsters of Florence. But we're going to keep Francesco anyway. And the police said, we're confident now. I'll tell you guys all one last thing. Florentinians can now rest easy. The only thing with this is that the public was not buying it. They weren't having it. How many times had they been through this? They were tense. They were staying off the roads at night. An advisor to Florence proposed an idea. Why don't we create villages of love? Governments can create a safe space that we're surrounded by gardens to set the vibe. We can even offer special services. He didn't specify what kind of special services. What? It'll be That's fenced. Crazy. We'll have a government official stand watch. And the whole idea was laughed off with people saying, why don't we just open up whorehouses now? Yeah, let's just make Florence that place. That's what a lot of Florentinians were saying. 
Meanwhile, Mario is doing the investigating. He looks up that there's only two nights in the summer that had no moon, July 28th and July 29th. And something does happen. Pia and Claudio, a young couple, they had driven out to an idyllic little field of flowers about five miles away from one of the monster's killings. And as usual, the monster watched Pia and Claudio have sex, ambushed them, shot them in the heads, dragged Pia out, mutilated her, where he didn't just take her genitals, but he took her left breast. Something to note, it wasn't cut off. It was literally ripped off. Didn't the two brothers, so they arrested one of them, right? What's his name again? Francesca. Francesca. Mm -hmm. Why didn't they arrest the other brother? He had no criminal record. They just didn't think it would be him. He was like living his best life. Are you kidding me? Yeah. What? I mean, mean, either you're going to arrest both with no evidence or don't arrest both with no evidence. Because it didn't seem like they had crazy evidence against Francesco. So if you're already going to do some illegal stuff, arrest both of them? I don't know. It's weird, right? Because he's already suspected of killing his wife back in Sardinia. So this guy's not a good person. I don't know why they didn't arrest him. Maybe they didn't know that yet. So during all of this, Francesco, Piero, and Giovanni were all in prison. So now it's time for the anger to be turned into the police or onto the police. What's wrong with you guys? You made us feel safe. Maybe these young people might not have gone out if you didn't give us this fake sense of security because the monster is still out there. Meanwhile, the police refused to release the three men and they're still flooded with tips that they have to follow. There were claims that it was a single man in his 40s who lives with his mom and she's protecting him. They go to church on the weekends. A claim that the monster was a woman, a British woman who teaches at a local school for kids that are under the age of 13. People even showed up to the police department claiming that they were the monster of Florence. A prosecutor working this case would later say, I never would have thought that there were so many strange people in Florence. Like, just weird. Why are you guys doing this? Even letters being sent to journalists, which honestly, they were disregarded most of the time was just strange but mario had received one that he couldn't stop thinking about it was handwritten it said in all caps i am very close to you you will never take me unless i choose it the final number is still far away 16 is not many i don't hate anyone but i have to do it if i want to live blood and tears will run soon You will make no progress the way you are going. You have gotten everything wrong. Too bad for you. I will make no more mistakes, but the police will. Inside of me, the night will last forever. I cried for them. Expect me. And he's thinking, wait, what, 16? The total number of deceased at this point was 12. 14 if you count the killings of Barbara in the car. So what do you mean 16? Then they look it up in the history. There was another killing of a young couple in their car, but the gun wasn't the same. No mutilation, no trophy taken. Maybe it was him. Maybe that was the monster. So to add more fuel to this Florence fire, Prince Roberto Carcini disappeared. It was a local prince who lived about seven miles away from the last murders in a very, very massive castle by himself. He was actually the last of the bloodline of this uh, royal family in Tuscany. He came from a super wealthy family and he vanished. He died. So what happened to Prince Roberto? A lot of people assumed that he was the monster. Well, one night he had some friends over from Germany and they were all staying in the castle and he thought might as well get some fresh air. So he heads out with a pair of binoculars with him and he was never seen again. His body was found in the woods later, shot by a shotgun. His face was obliterated. It was point-blank range. And Prince Roberto wasn't that well-loved in Florence. He was a prince. He was a loner. He was strange. He lived by himself in this massive castle in an area that the monster was operating in. Maybe he wasn't killed by the monster of Florence. 
But what if he was the monster of Florence? Then the castle was broken into two days later, but nothing was taken. Why would you break into a huge place like that that's under police surveillance right now and not steal anything of value? Well, maybe the idea is that the prince's partners or family had hired someone to go in there and take out anything that might have point at the prince for being the monster, such as the boobs, you know, the the genitals. Prince Roberto's killer was caught four days later, and you'd think that this would make the public be like, okay, maybe we're getting a little crazy here. No. The guy was a hunter. He was stalking a pheasant. It's like a quail, like a small bird, Mm -hmm. like smaller than a chicken, I believe. And he shot it, which, by the way, the prince was found near a pheasant that had been shot. And he said that the prince was starting to chase him in anger because this was the prince's property. You shot one of my pheasants. So he's literally screaming at this peasant, I guess, this hunter, and is chasing after him. And he uh, tried to shoot the prince in the leg, but he couldn't do it and the prince had shot like tried to duck because he thought he was going to get shot in the head but then now that he was aiming for the leg the bullet went into his head oh he's giving me the (laughs) wtf face and that's what the public said the public was like what kind of weird bs lying little story is that that doesn't make any sense why would you shoot the prince over something so small like killing a a pheasant near his property that doesn't make any sense even if you shot him in the leg successfully that's a very 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 big thing to do You shot the prince. So a news story emerged in the papers that this is all a decoy. The prince's family, I mean, they're powerful people. They had set someone up for this, but the prince is the monster. Maybe he had met up with someone who was trying to threaten him, blackmail him into staying quiet about being the monster. Someone had found out, you, Prince Roberto, are the monster. So he showed up in the woods to talk about this secret, to talk about how much do you want. But it all ended up in a fight and the blackmailer shot him to death. And now this local you know, Hunter is going down for it. It's weird. I mean, he didn't even go armed. I mean, allegedly, if the prince is the monster, he loves killing people and he didn't even bring a gun. So this is kind of like the theory that the public has. And a year later, another murder takes place. So they're like, okay, so it wasn't the prince. And this case becomes an international sensation that even the book Hannibal, you know, Hannibal Lecter was inspired by the monster of Florence. The Hannibal Lecter moves to Florence and lives under the fake name Dr. Fell, a Japanese publishing house, the largest one, in fact, asked Mario to write a book about the monster for them. There were movies about the monster, documentaries. A documentary even speculated that the monster came from an incestuous family. His mommy knows that he's a killer, and of course she's protecting him. The documentary makers also recreated the crime scene. Parents of the victims were so upset they told a judge about it, and it was blocked from being shown in Florence, but you could see it anywhere else in Italy. Around this time, another serial killer is operating in Florence. Six sex workers were killed one after the other in the main central part of the city. Everyone was shocked. They were murdered in their own homes where they brought their clients back. Nothing was stolen. It wasn't a robbery. They were tortured. They were violently stabbed to death in a stabbing pattern that wasn't the same as the monsters, but it was... There was a stabbing pattern. So it's clear that these murders are different from the monster murders, but also very similar. Was the monster trying to throw off the police? Maybe they're trying to switch up their style. Maybe they're, you know, evolving. Maybe this is a copycat. Is the monster inspiring people to become serial killers? Now, this is where it gets crazy. The last victim of these six women was a woman who lived in a super shabby hotel. Her entire walls were decorated with drawings from her daughter that the state had taken away. Her arms were tied with a sweater. She was suffocated with a cloth pushed down her throat. Now here's the fascinating detail. The hotel's water supply had been recently fixed by none other than Quick House Repair. Guess who works at Quick House Repair? 
The brother? Salvatore Vinci, the brother.、Oh. So finally, the police are like, oh yeah, we forgot about the brother. Let's look into the brother. When they finally check into his background, they find out wait, he's suspected. The locals of Sardinia believe that he killed his own wife, Barbarina, before he came to the mainland. I mean, wait, what? Even the way that he married Barbarina was despicable. It was not a high school romance. It wasn't even a college romance. When Barbarina was just 16 years old, she was dating a boy by the name of Antonio. Salvatore didn't really care about Barbarina at all, but he hated Antonio. So he wanted to do something to get back at Antonio. So he follows Barbarina into a field and rapes her. Now, from this assault, she gets pregnant. And because this is, you know, back in the day, this is, you know, different cultures. He felt it was his duty. Oh, yeah, because this guy just cares a lot. Salvatore felt like it was his duty to marry her, and he did. He was the worst husband. He beat her, didn't give her enough food. She barely had enough food or money to buy milk for the child. She was starving. The baby truly was her only happiness in life, and she named him Antonio. The ex boyfriend? Yes. That she continued to see Antonio behind Salvatore's back as well. So Salvatore feels disrespected by this. He even starts to question if maybe he's not the real father of the child. Now he's upset because November of that year, Barbarina and Antonio were doing it in the countryside and someone had taken pictures of them. The pictures started circulating in town and Salvatore was embarrassed. There w a s only a few things he could do either kill her or throw her out. So she said, okay, I'll leave with my baby. And she finds a job. And just as she's about to leave and move out, she's murdered. You know, it just didn't make sense. The way that the murder happened, it said that she poisoned herself with propane gas, but the propane tank was empty earlier in that morning. She couldn't even heat up her baby's milk. She went to her neighbor's house. There w a s a lot of weird things. She had scratches on her face, but the police ignored all of these weird details and just moved on with their lives. When the police start asking about Salvatore in Sardinia, someone comes forward and says, My gun was stolen right before he went to the mainland, and、uh, it was a 22 burrito or whatever. Okay, so let's say he kills his wife, steals the gun, heads to Tuscany. What else did he do once he g e t there? So before Barbara, there was another woman. He had married Rosina. They were divorced by the time that he meets Barbara, but she had a lot to say about Salvatore. Sure, his criminal record is clean, but he's an evil guy. Like, for an instance, in their marriage, they had a couple over for the night. They were going to sleep in the guest room. And after dinner, she had shared whispering. She heard Salvatore in their guest room, which is weird. So she kind of burst in, and Salvatore was having sex with the couple. And she's like, oh my God, you two get out of here to the couple. She was pissed. Like, you get out of here. You guys are sleeping with my husband. This is my husband. Salvatore got violent and he forced her by the hair to kneel in front of the couple and apologize and beg for their forgiveness. And that's not all. He would force her to date other couples with him. Sometimes she would wake up in bed to someone touching her. And not only was Salvatore in the bed, but so was his friend. And he would force her to have sex with all these people. Not only was he forcing her into threesomes, but with other couples, like foursomes, orgies. He would beat her if she didn't want to. He would force her to have sex with his friends while he watched, and he would even have sex with all of the men. It said that when he was having sex, if he f- had an eggplant or like a cucumber around, he would just stick it up his butt as well. Like there was just a lot going on. And honestly, none of this is really damning evidence. It's just people have preferences, but it's, it was forced upon Rosina. So this guy's not a good guy. This is not consensual. This is not a married couple having fun. 
So after they divorce, Rosina runs away, Salvatore meets Barbara, and he thought his prayers had been answered because she loved sex as much as he did, and they did it all the time. So here's Salvatore's son, by the way, just growing up in this chaos. He has no idea what happened to his mom back in Sardinia. He's, you know, he's hearing some rumors here and there that his dad might have killed his mom, but he doesn't know. He was really attached to Rosina. It was almost like a mother figure in his life, but then of course she left, and now he's lost, and Salvatore's out here just like having sex with the world and he's confused he needs a dad in his life and eventually he just spends all of his days with uncle francesco who became like a second dad to him now the police are convinced that salvatore was the monster of florence and he was the fourth accomplice in killing barbara he owned the gun he was one of the conspirators it was him so the police release piero giovanni and francesco and they put salvatore under 24-hour watch well not really because sometimes they wouldn't watch him i mean we'll get to that later When Francesco gets out, Mario actually has a conversation with him, the journalist, and he asks Francesco, what is your vision of the monster? And he says, someone who is intelligent, someone who knows how to move at night in the hills, even with his eyes closed, someone who once upon a time experienced a very, very great disappointment. Like, why did he, I mean, if someone asked you, what's your vision of the serial killer? You'd be like, freaking crazy, I tell Mm you, scary. But he said, someone who had once upon a time experienced a very, very great disappointment. Yeah, very specific. Yeah, and it's almost sympathetic. And like, how would you know all of that? Yeah. What? So that summer was one of the hottest summers in recent Florentine history. And it was also Sabrina's 19th birthday. So Sabrina, that Saturday with her boyfriend, went into his car, pulled off to the main road, and they were hoping to have sex there. But already another car was there with French license plates. There was a tent set up near the car and uh, something was off. There were a lot of flies surrounding the tent. It was smelly. So they're like, we got to get out of here. But another car was turning in. So the couple thought, wait a minute, what just what just happened? They alert the police to the scene because something about it just felt off. And they had no idea that they had run into the monster's latest victims. It was Nadine, who was 36. She owned a shoe store and she was with her 25-year-old boyfriend at the time. They were vacationing from France. They still had no idea about the monster. So they set up this tent to just have some risky sex. And um, the monster had slowly snuck up on in the tent and killed them. Now, what's important is that Jean, one of the guys, the victim, he had run out of the tent and he was actually fleeing from the monster. And he runs a lot of marathons in France. He's actually an amateur track star. But the monster outran him and killed him. No way. Keep this in mind for later because it comes back to bite the police in the butt. Nadine's genitals and her breasts were also taken and cut off. And um, I mean, this was just going to be a crazy show a letter shows up at the prosecutor's office a little while later and inside wrapped in tissue paper is nadine's left breast so this causes the only female investigator on the case to resign she said this present changed her life she only worked at the police station from then on she was locked in her office she had two bodyguards outside her door at all times she had ptsd the police contemplated do we put out a reward or what There was an opposition to the reward. Some people said it felt too American. It's going to be a witch hunt. We're going to have bounty hunters. And a few weeks later, a rumor starts. In a nearby town, a young doctor, Francesco, he was a son of one of the richest families in the area, committed suicide by drowning himself in a lake. Well, that's it. He must be the monster. He was overcome by remorse. Perfect. 
Now, the police were divided on this. Two groups of people had formed. One group believed that the Vinci family were at the center of all of this. It's, it's got to be somewhere with Salvatore and Francesco involved. Then the other people believed, no, it's just one person. You guys are, it's a doctor. That's the first theory that the public had. It's got to be, a, it's got to be a doctor. Another thing that made the whole investigation difficult was that in Italy, there's not really clean cut jurisdictions when major crime happens. So you just have like two, two agencies rush to the scene trying to claim the scene. For instance, there was a robbery, a heist, if you will, a bank robbery, a bank heist. And uh, two agencies showed up and in front of the robbers, they were arguing about who gets the case. So one of the judges ordered Stefano to be arrested and forced to talk. And the public was outraged. This old man who already served his time, like, just let him be. And Stefano finally broke down and said the reason that he covered for Salvatore being involved in Barbara's murder was because he was having sex with Salvatore at the time. Stefano was the one having sex with Salvatore. So they were cut lovers too? Yes. Wow. And other men. And Stefano did not want to get it out. So the judge is like, wait, what? Let's go back to the evidence. Hey, police officers. Remember when you searched Salvatore's house? What did you find in his house? And they said, well, we found a woman's purse covered with powder residue, drops of blood. Okay, well, did you analyze the blood? No, we didn't. Because if Salvatore was really guilty, why would he have such a blatant clue just lying around? So we thought, we thought that that wasn't a clue at all. <laughs> you like what we did there? <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't analyze it at all, but then analyze it now. And they go, <laughs> see, judge, we can't do that because we never took any um, samples from the crime scenes. So we have nothing to match it to. Yes, we could analyze it if that's what you want, but there's nothing to match it to. So are you kidding me? Well, what about that weekend of the recent murders, the last murders? <laughs> Did you see him go? Does he have an alibi? We took that weekend off. What in the world? We, um, yeah, we just were kind of busy. So you watched him during the weekday when the monster never kills and decided to take off not watching him on the weekends when the monster always kills. We had, we had a thing. We had like a little donut party. This was all being exposed by the judge who was super pissed. And he officially deemed Salvatore an official suspect. He would later have him ordered to be arrested, not for the monster killings, but for the murder of his wife, Barbarina. And for two years while Salvatore was in prison, the prosecutors put together a case against him. And during this time, the monster did not kill again, only furthering half the people's theory that it had been Salvatore all along. So the trial begins in the capital of Sardinia. And during this, Salvatore talked to the reporters, including Mario, about sexual freedom. Even Antonio, Salvatore's own son, who is 27 years old now, came to be forced to testify against his own dad. There was a lot of tension. Antonio refused to talk. He just stared down his dad. And he would later tell reporters, if it hadn't been for the police officers, I would have strangled my own father right then and there. And all of this led to a disastrous outcome of Salvatore being acquitted. What? For the murder of Barbarina, his first wife. Oh. There was no proof that he was a monster, so he was yet again free. And he disappeared forever. 
and a lot of officials' reputations were crumbling at this point. The police decided to launch a fresh investigation into the monster of Florence. They had a new head officer in charge who decided, I'm just going to make a name for myself. He didn't care about justice. He cared about making a name for himself. He started running the name of every guy between the age of 30 and 60 in Florence who had ever been in trouble with the law. From there, he filtered out the ones that were convicted of sexual crimes, then the criminals who were active during the same time as the monster killings. So this narrowed it down to a dozen people. And one of these names stood out to him. Pietro Pacciani. Pietro, he, I mean... (laughs) Someone had accused him of being the monster. Pietro was in prison for having killed his own fiance. He was a very cunning man, intelligent. He was a farmer, but quick minded. He would hold his entire family hostage. His daughters were never allowed to go out. They had no friends. Overall, just a scummy dude. The police never followed up on this tip because it turned out Pietro hadn't actually killed his fiance, but instead he killed a man that was seducing his fiance. So the officers were like, well, shoot, I'd kill the dude seducing my fiance, too. So they're like, the guy's innocent. I mean, it made sense. So after the last of the monster killings, Pietro was sent to prison for raping his own daughter. And that would explain why the monster was silent for three years. So all they really did was fit this guy's timeline and his criminal history into the monster, but not because of any hard evidence, not Mm -hmm. because of any clues. So the police were so excited, they didn't even consider the inconsistencies. So for one, Pietro's murder of his ex-fiance's lover was messy. It was a crime of passion. He beat the guy's head with a rock and then stabbed him. He threw his girlfriend on the grass next to her dead lover and raped her. Then he tried to dump the guy's body at a lake, but it was too heavy, so he left him in the field instead. It was so unorganized that he was caught immediately. He left clues everywhere, as opposed to the meticulous manner of the monster. But the police were busy. They were trying to tie anything together. I mean, it's kind of like when you like someone in middle school and you start connecting all these random things with them and you're like, they like me too. I just know it. Okay, I sound like a stalker. You do that, really? You know, but like, you know, when you're young, you're just like connecting all these... Or when you... When you're about to bet on red in Vegas, I, I don't even gamble in Vegas. I don't know. But then suddenly a guy's T-shirt is red and you're like, oh, red. Does that make sense? It's like, doesn't make any sense. I can't believe the police are doing this. They pull Pietro's past confession and it said this. I was hiding in the woods. I was spying on my fiance and her lover. They're about to get naked in the car. And I saw, his, I saw my fiance start to take off her clothes. And that's when she had taken out her left boob. And that's when I just snapped. And I went into a frenzy. The police are like, oh my God, the monster of Florence took left breasts. It's a thing. Even though there were details that didn't support this theory, such as Pietro was 60 years old. He was short. Um, he had a heart attack in the past three years. Remember 25-year-old Jean, who was an amateur champion of the 100-meter dash and a marathon runner, who was outrun by the monster? You think Pietro did that? He didn't have the athleticism for it. He had a bad knee, he had chronic ear infections, hypertension, diabetes, kidney issues, to name a few. He had more than that. The police found a rifle in a porn magazine in his house, and they're like, this guy's the killer. He likes guns and he likes sex. He's a sex sadist. They also find a a painting in Pietro's house. It was a centaur, like a science fiction animal, like a centaur, like a dinosaur. I don't know what a centaur is. So there was a centaur. So inside of a large cube, there was a centaur and the centaur had female and male sex organs and big clown feet. There were seven crosses on the ground surrounded by flowers. And the police are thinking the seven crimes of the monster. 
Seven crimes? Because he killed a lot of people, but it was seven times because it was couples. Oh. So the, I mean, this makes sense. They brought the painting to be psychoanalyzed by a therapist, and they said the painting is compatible with someone that could be the monster. So the police are like, yeah, yeah, it's the guy. But how do you explain the connection to Stefano and Barbara? Because it's the same murder weapon. And he's like, well, this random guy must have just been there. Like, he was like, hey, guys, what are you guys doing tonight? Let me join the party. And that just kind of, you know, spurred his love for killing, I guess. Seven years passed since the last monster killings, and there still wasn't enough to arrest Pietro. He was denying all the allegations. The police were so upset they facilitated a massive 12-day search of his property. So Salvatore is free right now. Yeah, and missing. Like, he just disappeared. And he didn't kill for seven years. Yeah. Which huh. is weird, too. All of, yeah. all of it's weird. So, I mean, nobody's killing. And Pietro, they're doing a 12-day search of his property. And this would be one of the longest, most technical searches of personal property in Italian history. Just this random guy that the police were like, you, you're the one, you're it. They examined the walls inch by inch. They lifted up the roof tiles one by one. They excavated three deep into the garden. They used ultrasonic technology to survey every square millimeter of the land surrounding the house. And April 29th, they were about to throw in the towel, but then they found it. A Winchester Series H cartridge, which is the same brand of bullets as the one from the monster's crime scenes. Now, it's not the same box. It's also not the same bullet, but it's the same brand. I mean, but when you buy ammunition, maybe you buy multiple boxes of the same brand. I don't know, right? But because it hadn't been fired at, they don't have the monster's signature mark on them. Now, experts said, well, it's, it's possible that these bullets could fit into that type of handgun. So the police are like, well, that's enough for us. We're going to arrest him, even though we don't have the murder weapon, nor do we have the specific bullets. As long as you say there's a possibility, we're just going to bounce on it. So Pietro is thrown in prison. His trial's going to start April. And the public was torn. I mean, who are they going to side with? Some girls even wore shirts that said, I heart Pietro to the, to the courthouse, which, I mean, honestly, in this one, I don't think that he's the monster, but I don't think we should be supporting him because he did rape his daughter and he also killed his fiance fiance's lover and then raped her his fiance in front of the dead lover's body what so i really so why are people supporting him because they don't think he's the monster and they think that the police are corrupt so i think that they're like oh we either side with the police or we side with him and we're gonna go all out instead of being mm. like maybe we should have a middle ground where we look for justice but not really support the guy mm -hmm. so while in court pietro would cry out i'm a sweet little lamb i am here christ on the cross like he would just cry like a weenie baby on the stand and he was accused of being the monster he would just spit and curse at the jury and then cry and then just he was a wreck the trial took over six months even his daughter testified against him and they were crying like they told about the rape that they endured from their dad and one of them even said he didn't want daughters once mom had a miscarriage and uh, he knew that that boy it was a boy that she had miscarried and he told us you both should have died and he should have lived he beat us when we didn't want to go to bed with him and he would always try to feed us weird things like the meat of a groundhog like it just made them eat weird stuff the star witness in this case was a man by the name of lorenzo who um Honestly, conveniently, he was just like one of those witnesses that the police had found and were like, hey, you should do this. So you get an incentive. Maybe he was already trying to be maybe he was already being arrested for something. Maybe he was caught for something. But he just kept conveniently recalling a lot of precise stories when it was useful, because, mind you, I mean, things took place like 10 years ago. 
So mm-hmm. why didn't you report it 10 years ago? And he was like, well, I saw Pietro in the car near the area of the murder. And I was only like 70% sure that it was him 10 years ago. But now I'm 90% sure. But crazy enough, Lorenzo got the color of Pietro's car wrong. He said it was red when in fact it was white. So I guess it's that 10%. Even with all of this, the judge declared Pietro guilty. The last words that Pietro had during the trial on this one was an innocent dies. So it's kind of clear that a lot of people think the police framed him, the judge is in on it. They just want to close the case of the monster of Florence. They don't want this hanging over their heads. I mean, yeah, they haven't been active. The killer isn't killing yet, but it's bad. Like, what are you doing? Like, we got to catch the killer. We're going to look like idiots. How many years have we been in office? How many years have we been the chief inspector of the police department and the killer still on the loose with technology getting better, with all these things getting better? We're a laughing stock. So they just wanted to throw this guy as the scapegoat. It's hard to believe that the police and the judge even believed it was him because then you'd really have to question how stupid are these people. Yeah. Right? Like, just what? So Mario just freaked out. Um, He was talking to some marshals of a different agency. So he wasn't talking to the police, but let's say our counterpart would be like the FBI. He was talking to an FBI agent who really didn't have as much skin in the game because the police were the ones leading the investigation. They weren't really doing much. So that FBI agent had allegedly said, I don't think it's him. I think that the police had planted evidence. And Mario secretly taped recorded all of this. And he felt so bad. But he, um, he knew he had to be done. The truth had to come out, so he leaked it to the national TV channels, and he knew that the next day it'd be explosive news. So the next day he sits on the couch, turns on the TV, ready to watch it all go down. There was nothing. Everything had been suppressed. And Mario knew he couldn't sit around anymore because clearly someone in power was behind this. Someone in power said, no, we're going to let Pietro go down, and we're going to act like this is justice. Wow. So in Italy, you're sentenced to life in prison. Um, If you're sentenced to life in prison, you're automatically granted an appeal. So there's going to be a new panel of judges and a new prosecutor who will kind of go through the trial again. And this time, um, with Pietro's case, the judges were shocked. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So it's like a different jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So it's not the judge that would be over this area. So these judges Mm -hmm. are like, there's no reason for him to even be in jail. There's no evidence. The police were further embarrassed because the prosecutor was like, I think Pietro's innocent. I don't even know what I'm doing in this job because I'm here, but I'm not going to even list out why I think he's guilty because I don't think he's guilty. So as the police are waiting for the verdict to come in to see how this is going to end, the police rush into the courtroom and they say, we have some witnesses for their protection. They're unnamed. We will call them Alpha, Beta, Gamma and Delta. We've got four witnesses who said that they were there and they had watched him kill Barbara. They had watched him kill some of these you know, victims. They saw it all. We've been silent for 10 years, the witnesses said. But now we got to speak out because the monster must stay in prison. And the judge is like, well, who are these people? I can't tell you. What? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. If you can't name them, then dismiss them. So Pietro is given an acquittal and he was released to crowds wearing I love Pietro shirts. So the journalists uncovered the identity of these witnesses and they were all mentally ill men who had troubles with the law. Delta was a pimp. Gamma was an alcoholic sex worker. A lot of the witnesses were um, beggars. Like they were always laughed at, joked at because this is so sad, but they were seen as like the like the town's laughing stock. And I'm sure that it was really mental illness. 
But everyone's like, oh, there's just, you know, Alpha going around doing that. But the police kept going. They kept Beta, the star witness, in witness protection. And he started slowly fitting more parts of the evidence into his story. But none of it really made sense logically. Like, yeah, the evidence fits into his story. But as the public viewing it, it's almost like the Prince story. Why would you shoot the Prince of the leg? That's not even the crazy part. Another witness, remember Gamma? So Alpha, Beta, Delta, Gamma. Gamma said, oh, I saw Pietro and he's obsessed with black magic. Witchcraft. And the police jump on this. Oh, this is great. Gamma, tell us more. I saw Pietro always performing rituals at this wizard's house. Who's the wizard? Oh, the wizard died 10 years ago. But he would go there and he would, uh, the entire place had pentagrams, candles, condoms, liquor bottles. To me, it sounds like an abandoned house that like kids go and like graffiti and have sex, you know? But he's like, no, 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 it was a wizard's house. So that explains the mutilated taken body parts. He took it. Pietro took it for these satanic cult rituals. Duh. So while the police are prepping for another trial against Pietro, he dies of a second heart attack. The witnesses were sentenced to either life or 28 years in prison. And the whole thing was sad because they were rambling. It was clear that they were coached. They had no idea that they were throwing their entire lives away. Maybe thought that they thought that this was a better option than their lives. It was just bad. But there was the question of, well, what about the body parts? But that didn't matter. Maybe someone ate it. Maybe it was thrown away. You know, why do we need that? Why do we need the murder weapon? The police investigator, the head investigator, tried to tie everything up with a pretty bow on it and decided that he was going to start writing a book on the case. The case that he had just cracked so well. And a lot of it would center around satanic sacrifices and cults. The cult he presumed that Pietro belonged to was the School of the Red Rose. It was an ancient, forgotten, diabolical cult that loved ritual killings and sacrifices. He claimed that the School of the Red Rose is a huge organization that is said to be behind some of the craziest crimes. The kidnapping and murder of a former Italian prime minister and a Belgian pedophile ring. It's said that some conspiracy theorists even blame the School of Red Rose to be behind 9-11. Now, remember that odd doorstop that was found at one of the first crime scenes, the triangular one? Well, that makes sense. Triangles are the bridge between this world and hell. It's like the Illuminati. It's a cult. This is the head of the police? Yeah, the chief inspector. Now, as this whole cult thing, I mean, it's a really... You gotta read the book because it's an entire saga. Like, he builds a fantasy world around this cult theory. There is, like, an allegation that this foreigner named Claude was at a local village motel and he had left behind drawings of mutilated women's parts. There's an allegation that a doctor who had drowned himself, remember, in a lake had drowned in a lake. Oh, he was the one that was harvesting the genitals for the sacrifice for the cult. I mean, it's just, there's like a whole world. It's like a whole Marvel movie that he had built around this cult idea. But one one of the few people who did not believe in it was Mario, the the reporter, the author of this book, the co-author. He just didn't make sense. You're just sensationalizing the whole thing. The police are just trying to cover for their horrible detective work. He didn't think it was a cult. He didn't even think it was Salvatore because of this. He believed, Mario believed, the monster is impotent. He suffers from sexual dysfunction and would have little or no sexual contact with women his own age. He kills to satisfy these desires, which can't be satisfied in the normal way. There's strong evidence of that at the crime scenes. So there's no evidence of rape, molestation, sexual activity, or even semen. But Salvatore was the opposite of sexually impotent. I mean, he just doesn't even match the profile that the FBI made for the monster of Florence. In this psychological aspect, it just doesn't fit together. So you wonder, who do you think it is, Mario? 
And he said, well, four months before the monster's first killings, Salvatore went to the police and filed a complaint that the door of his house was forced in and the house was intruded upon. The police said, well, was it a robbery? Did you get robbed? And he said, I don't know if they stole anything. So what if at that time the gun was stolen and Salvatore knew, but he couldn't report it because that was also the murder weapon for Barbara's murder? So he just said, I don't know. But at least this report later, if that gun is used to do something, he can come back and say, oh, well, I reported it years ago. I don't know. Someone broke in. I don't know if it was stolen. I didn't even think about the gun. Four months after this report, the monster had killed. So what's going on here? So who do you think Mario is implicating as the monster? Antonio Vinci, Salvatore's own son. He couldn't turn him in. He couldn't say, hey, my son stole my gun. He couldn't even mention the gun. But maybe this was his way of, you know, kind of getting it on file. He was one of the two people left alive from the Vinci family connected to all of this. So at this point, it had been years since the last murders. Uh, Francesco had been murdered. His body was hogtied and locked in the trunk of a burning car. Stefano, Piero and Giovanni, they were all dead. Salvatore and Antonio, they were alive. And Antonio was the only one that was connected to all of this. He didn't have alibis. He was there at the time of the murders. He lived in that area. It made sense. He would have access to Salvatore's gun. Do you think Salvatore knows? I think so. And I think that's why Antonio was so mad at Salvatore at the trial. Not because he believed that Salvatore killed his mom because he had already heard these rumors. I'm sure he already knew. But I think it's because you're getting too close to home. You're going to get me in trouble. It also makes more sense that the uncle Francesco is protecting Antonio versus the other way around. Like if you're a young kid, you get arrested because your uncle is suspected of doing something. It's so much easier for the young kid to break and say, I I did it or they did it, you know. So Mario teamed up with Douglas Preston, which is uh, the co-author of this book, and they launched their own investigation. They try talking to Antonio. They show up at his door and Antonio comes to the door and says, ah, Mario, it's you. The monstrologer, I've wanted to meet you for a long time now. And Mario slipped out a tape recorder and said, can I use this? No, no, I'm jealous of my own voice. It's too velvety. It's too rich in tone to be put in that box. Now, he's very smooth. Even the way he rejects being tape recorded is so charismatic and he's doing it all with a smile. But it's very assertive. There's really nothing you can else say to that. Like, why? Why are you scared? It's, he didn't say that. He didn't say he was scared. So he says, well, what kind of relationship did you have with your uncle Francesco? Ah, we were very close. It was a friendship with a bond of iron. I'd give you the inside scoop. Do you know when Francesco was arrested? Well, I was with him that day. Nobody knows that till now. That night was also the night of a murder near the castle. Antonio was living in that area and it was the murder that led the police to arrest Francesco. So, I mean, the the authors just thought it was weird. So that means your uncle Francesco had a witness in his favor. You could have helped him by, you know, avoid him being accused of being the monster and spending years in jail. Why didn't you just say that you were with him the night of the murders? Oh, because I don't want to get mixed up in his affairs. So you let him serve two years in prison because you don't want to get in his business? He wanted to protect me and I had faith in the system. Antonio mentions that he was married at one point, but now divorced because his wife couldn't bear children. Or maybe he was impotent. This triggered Mario, who thought it was him. And he said, if your dad owned the gun, you were in the best position to take it. There was silence. I have proof I didn't take it. Oh yeah, and what's the proof? Well, if I had taken it, I would have fired it into my father's head. Well, Wow, what a proof. Yeah. Well, Antonio, following this line of reasoning, you were away from Florence the precise time that there were no more killings. When you returned, they began again. 
and he leaned back in his chair and smiled and he said those were the best years of my life i had a house i ate well and i fucked all those girls so because of that you were away having a great time you're not the monster no no it's not because of that it's because i like my pussy alive and with that he courteously kicked them out and as they were headed out the door he said ah maria i forgot something and suddenly his voice changed from that velvety smooth voice to a dark threatening tone and said listen carefully I don't fucking play games. And he slammed the door shut. So those, those two, the authors, they get to work. Douglas and Mario, they start writing up this article and they submit it to the New Yorker who buys it from them. But then 9-11 happens in the US and they decide we don't really want to run these types of stories right now. So they give it back to the authors. And this only made the two more obsessed. They start writing a book together. And this is this book, one of my favorite books of all time. They just started when the head of police just released his book. Remember, because the chief inspector was writing a book and that book was that book was something else. Okay, really something else. May 14th of 2004, Mario is just kind of shocked by that book and goes on to a TV show like America's Most Wanted, but the Italian version. And he was hoping to discredit the police investigation and prove that it was bogus. But nobody cared what Mario had to say. Nobody wanted it. They wanted just to have like this crazy, sensational true crime story, the serial killer, right? They didn't want, they wanted the cult. That's what they wanted. That's what the people wanted. Mario, you're boring. We want a crazier cult. If you're not going to give us one, you're lying. So the police heard it and they were pissed nobody else cared the public didn't care but the police they cared a few days later they show up at mario's house with search warrants he was accused of 19 crimes that they wouldn't tell him and he said what do you mean you have to tell me what i'm being accused of doing and they said no it would take us volumes to explain them let us in they took his computers all of his hard drives except the one hidden in his couch cushions with all the information that they needed for their book Mario was shook. He kept asking, what are you doing? And as they're leaving, because Mario's a very ballsy guy, he points at his doorstop in the library of his house. And he says, you see that? That looks like the one that you found at the crime scene. This esoteric cult object. It's a doorstop. It's a doorstop. You can find them everywhere in Tuscany. Oh, cult. It's a doorstop. And that was the moment the police looked at him, looked at each other, seized his doorstop as evidence, and now he was directly tied to one of the crimes. Oh my god, I can't. For a year, between January 2005 and 2006, Mario's lawyers tried to learn what the charges were. They still didn't know what he was being charged of. Meanwhile, Mario, you think he's staying out of trouble waiting for his trial? No, he's out here trying to get more leads on Antonio. This is his passion. This is his job. They find a friend of Antonio's who confessed to Mario that something strange had happened. This friend allegedly had gone out to an abandoned house with Antonio and inside were six locked metal containers. And he said, hey, what is that? And Antonio slapped his chest and said, that's my stuff. Six boxes for six female victims? Because at the time there were six. So he gives Mario the location and Mario goes out there, but he can't call the police. He also can't just walk in and investigate. So he writes a letter and passes it to the police and says, hey, listen, an anonymous viewer, anonymous reader sent me this as a tip because I'm a journalist. And when he tried to give it to the chief inspector, um, the higher ups came. Now, here's the crazy thing. Everyone had lied to Mario. I don't know why. Maybe these people were threatened. Maybe they were paid by the police. Maybe the police wanted it. But the story of the, this house, this abandoned house and those metal boxes was fake. Now, this gave police a reason to believe that Mario is lying to them. But they, they need to stop spending time like making up stuff and yeah. 
fixing their stories. They just yeah. So they bring in both the authors and accuse them. Now, um, <laughs> Douglas is an American citizen. He's an American author. So he he's being yelled at by the Italian investigators and they're screaming, you and Mario either planted or were trying to plant a gun or other false evidence at that abandoned house to frame an innocent man, to derail this investigation and to deflect suspicion from Mario. That is what you were doing. And Douglas said, well, that's just a theory. Well, it's not theories. These are facts, Dr. Preston. You know a great deal more about this than you're letting on. Do you realize the utmost seriousness, the gravity of these crimes? Do you know that Mario is being investigated for the murder of these victims? That makes you an accessory, Dr. Preston. I can hear it in your voice. I can hear the tone of your knowledge, the deep familiarity of these events. You have one last chance to tell us what you know, or I will charge you with perjury. I don't care. I'll do it. I told you the truth. I don't know what more I can do. Now, it's clear the police were trying to frame Mario, the monstrologist, as the monster. Because, yeah, they had done it with Pietro, but it still wasn't good enough. And Mario was out here making sure that their claims were getting debunked left and right. So what's better than this? Besides, the press would love it. The lead, lead psychoanalyst, journalist for the case turns out to be the serial killer. Are you kidding? So Douglas, he gets, um, he gets booted. He gets sent back to America. And right after Mario's apartment was raided, he was placed on surveillance. His phones were tapped. He was being recorded. His apartment was bugged. And a week later, he goes to an auto shop because his car radio wasn't working. Turns out the car was bugged with a GPS and a mic system. And around this time, the police chief, the chief inspector, his second book is released. It's called The Monster, Anatomy of an Investigation. Became a huge bestseller, even mentions Mario for being an accessory to murder, hinting that Mario himself was involved in some of the killings. Mario filed a civil suit against the chief inspector for libel. And uh, in April of 2006, Mario was arrested. Mario's wife told Douglas they tricked him to coming down to the gate. He was in his slippers. He had nothing on him, not even his wallet. They refused to show him the warrant. They threatened him, forced him into the car and took him away. What's fascinating is that their book, The Monster in Florence, was due to release in 12 days. So this could have been a great big ploy to stop it. Italian law has um, something that when dangerous criminals like terrorists or mafia kingpins are arrested, they can be denied a lawyer. They can be kept in solitude for as long as the police feel that it's necessary. And that's what they did to Mario. They kept him in isolation. Now, this is, um, this is technically to use against violent criminals who might order hits on other people or like threaten people. But his treatment was worse in prison than some of the most notorious, horrible criminals. You would think that the public would be upset, right? But a lot of people didn't know. Other journalists were too terrified. So they kept it shut. They didn't even want to test the waters. They did not talk about how Mario was arrested. After five days, Mario was allowed to meet with his lawyers. Twelve days after his arrest, the prime minister of Italy receives a letter from the Committee to Protect Journalists. It's an international committee. And they said, journalists should not be fearful to conduct their own investigations into sensitive matters or to speak openly and criticize officials in a democratic country such as your own, one that is an integral part of the European Union. Such fear is unacceptable. We call on you to make sure Italian authorities clarify the serious charges against our colleague and make public all available evidence supporting these charges or release him immediately. Government efforts to promote this climate of self-censorship are a danger to democracy. Now, 
There was international outrage from journalists. So you got a lot of people writing a lot of articles in a lot of different languages about this situation. Okay, there was it was flooded. Foreign journalists were so outraged. So finally, with the backing of their international colleagues, Italian journalists were ready to unleash their fury and come back with a fire burning vengeance. I tell you. They said Mario's arrest was an attack on journalism itself for the crime of disagreeing with an official investigation. That's what he was arrested for. The crime that Mario committed was journalism. Protests started taking place all across Italy. The prime minister got involved. I mean, it was a shit show. The judge and the prosecutors on this case still claimed, though, they were not going to release Mario because he is extremely dangerous. Why is he extremely dangerous? He has demonstrated his enormous dangerousness by succeeding even while locked up in a prison cell and organizing a mass media campaign in his favor. Oh my gosh, this is bizarre. So it took him 23 days in prison to be released. And Mario is like a crazy person. I love him so much. I don't know him, but I love him just by reading the book. When it was time for him to be released, the guard told him, before you leave, you have to clean your cell. And Mario screams, I never asked to come here and I was put here illegally. If you want it clean, clean it yourself. And the guard says, well, if you like it here so much, you can just stay. Listen, you idiot. I know your name. And if you don't let me out immediately, I will sue you for false imprisonment. Do you understand? And the guard <laughs> let him out to a crowd of cheering people. The police submitted a request to the Supreme Court to try Mario's case of being the monster. And uh, they dismissed all proceedings against Mario. Then the police homes were searched. The chief investigator's home was searched. They had a list of journalists that, that, that didn't like them, a list of journalists that were against the police in this situation, and they were wiretapping their phones under the anti-terrorist law. So they were legally wiretapping these journalists just because I don't like you. Jeez. He was even taping phone calls between judges and investigators, including the prime minister of Florence. He thought they were all working against him. It was all a big conspiracy, and that's why Mario was let go. This guy is insane. Oh, he gets crazier. Summer of 2006, they were indicted for abuse of office. And I say they because there's like five core investigators here. And they're going to actually be tied to another true crime case. Do you remember Amanda Knox? Yes. Yeah. Which one she was, was uh, She was abroad in Italy and her roommate was murdered. And they all said it was her, even though it wasn't her. And she went through hell and back. Uh -huh. These are essentially the same people. Yeah. NBC had interviewed the authors on this case. They even got a comment from Antonio, who was more annoyed that the authors were accusing him of being impotent rather than accusing him of being the monster. He said straight up, if Mario's wife were younger and prettier, I'd show them who isn't impotent. I'd show them right here, right now on this table. And then another woman was killed. And guess who the police accused this time? There was headlines that says, is this an another monster? But um, no, the police did not think it was another monster. Instead, they thought it was Amanda Knox. Yeah, that case that I will be covering in upcoming weeks. So I don't want to spoil it, but it all kind of weaves together in this show of craziness. And I think like in America, we were all sitting here like, how did the police do that to Amanda Knox? Why did they think that that was OK? And then you hear this story and you're like, oh, OK. I mean, I guess that's just what they do. Here's the crazy part. The monster of Florence case was never reopened. They got away. The monster got away. Now, you could say maybe it's one of the people that were arrested and released or Pietro who was arrested and then died in prison. But essentially, yeah, I think it was Antonio. I think it was Antonio. I think Salvatore knew. I think Francesco knew. I think they were all there at the night of Barbara's murder. And I think Antonio went on to kill more people. 
What? I don't want to psychoanalyze, but like, I don't know. I'm just thinking like his mom had passed away when he was so young. He's had this void in his life. And sometimes a void isn't just sadness. Sometimes it turns to anger. And so maybe that's why he mutilated these women. There was this anger of his mom not being there for him when he needed her. And then also the fact that he's impotent, allegedly, maybe that also adds to the anger. Because the way that it, I mean, the killings happened, the boyfriend of the, the two was just shot they all died rather quickly, but the girl was put through torture. So who did the police claim to be the killer? Oh, I think it was Pietro and then Mario. But I think now they're back on Pietro, the, the guy who already died. But I guess we're going to end this one with who do you think the monster is? And I hope you guys enjoyed this crazy story of one of the most notorious serial killers in Italy. I just... Like, if you read the book, you're going to cry for the victims. You're going to cry for the victims' families. But you're also going to feel this burning frustration that just doesn't go away. That is, like, so overpowering. I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. I don't know when I'm going to stop thinking about it. So I hope you guys enjoyed. And I'll see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye. <laughs>